Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in the Word of God and to read a portion of Scripture that has largely um, gone missed, uh, gone missing, uh, from a great deal of understanding who you are and how you work with people. Help us, Father, to comprehend, understand, and give us wisdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want to belabor this too long. What you'll want to do is you'll want to turn to Numbers 13. But let me just give you like a two-minute refresher. The reason why our Deuteronomy class is in Numbers chapter 13 is because there is a comment that is made by Moses that there was something that went from an 11 days journey into the promised land that ended up taking 40 years to get there. And the question we've been asking is, why in the world does it take so long? What in the world happened in order to detour them so severely? And so if you remember, what happened was is the first generation that had come out of the Exodus is getting ready to go into the promised land. They're on the edge. They're waiting to cross over with God's command. And before they do that, God sends 40 spies into, or I'm sorry, not 40, 12 spies into the hill country for 40 days. And in doing so, each one of them already had a ruling type of responsibility for the Lord as far as their tribe was concerned. The two most notables that we know of this group is Joshua and Caleb. Now, when they go over, they find out, wow, the land is just like the Lord had been promising all this time. We're not going to miss a beat with this thing. It's amazing what it is. They bring back some of the fruit, but they also take notice of the city and the people. What are we dealing with as far as logistics are concerned? If we're going to formulate a battle plan, what do we need to look at overcoming when we get there? That scares the majority of the spies. And so when they return and they begin talking with Moses and Aaron about what they saw, they proceed to start to give a bad report. And if you remember, it starts to unnerve a lot of people. And so what we're going to pick up is in chapter 13, and we're going to look at verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Now that is the end of that quotation for Caleb. And here's what we left off with last time. When you are in a situation of uncertainty that goes against what the Lord has clearly expressed to you or explained to you to do, You need to have, if it's not in yourself, someone of leadership that in uncertain times can point a direction that holds fast to what God has said. Remember this, the greatest enemy of God is unbelief, unbelief in situations. So Caleb seeks to bring some sort of order to everybody getting antsy and anxious and upset. He wants to make sure that everybody's minds get refocused on who is going to win the battle. The only reason to be nervous in this situation is because you have come to the conclusion of, I can't fight this battle. My strength won't prevail. Now, hasn't that been the lesson all of our life? Our strength won't prevail. So what we need here is some sort of clarification, and Caleb decides to bring truth into the mix. Now watch how it's handled. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. Pause. Is that a lie? It is, and it's not. Depends on how he means it. What does he mean by this? 
How are the spies who disagree with Caleb speaking? In the flesh. In the flesh, we can't do this. In the flesh, we're not conquering anything. In the flesh, we're not coming out on top. We are going to lose, Caleb. What in the world is wrong with you? Well, yeah, as long as that's where your hope's found, you are going to lose. You're absolutely correct. So notice what he says here. We're not able to go up against these people. For, here's the reason, they are too strong for us. Get this. Get this, because we often suffer from this whenever we get into a situation of trial, being tried in some way, or having to make a decision, or to go do something that the Lord's called us to do. Let's let's just use this example that we just got done talking about uh, uh, earlier. Evangelism. Raise your hand. Be honest with you. How many of you that evangelizing some people, I mean, it literally bothers you a little bit. It scares you some. scares some of us to death. Everybody's hand should be up. Okay? Everybody's hand should be up. Because there is something just strange about inserting Jesus into an otherwise normal conversation, isn't there? Let me ask you this question. Is it the right thing to do? It is. These people here have allowed the present circumstance to overcome the glorious promises. God has eternal life waiting to give to anyone who will believe in him, who will receive it. He's already supplied everything we need for it. What's the missing link here? We just need to be obedient in telling the message. There's a myriad of ways of telling the message. And we're not here to keep like our evangelistic belts have like little notches on it. Yeah, we'll save this person, won this person, talk to this person, yeah. And you have like this whole belt riddled up from all these people. That, that's it's not about keeping score. We don't save people. That's important. God saves people. We are just responsible for being truthful with the message. And as long as we're truthful with the message, doing what he's called us to do, everything else rests on him. Let him deal with the burdens of everything else. It really is that simple. Too often we let these present circumstances cloud what God has already told us out ahead is going to happen. So notice here, verse 32. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report. Now it's gone public, right? They gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report. Of the land, which they had spied out saying, now watch this, okay? Anybody here into soap operas? See, you don't want to answer that question. <laughs> you know how bad they are. But we're getting ready to see one here. Talk about overinflated. This, these are the days of our lives right here, right? Look what's going on. The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Does anybody have that guy in their life that just fabricates? Okay, Larry. (laughs) That just blows that stuff up, man. You listen, and and they usually are one-up people too. You listen to them and you're like, this is the worst horse story I've ever heard in my life. What are you talking about? And they're just overinflating every situation. Here's what's terrible about this. Does everybody see the underlying fleshly motive of the ten spies? Does everybody see how they are seeking to persuade the people in a certain direction? Don't we do that a lot whenever we just simply talk to people? I mean, try to really amp them up so that they'll either do or not do what we want them to do, not really what they ought to do. 
Very interesting. So notice, the land devours its inhabitants is the idea. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Now, were all the men of great size? No, just the sons of Anak, right? Everybody remember that? Just them. It's not unusual to have huge, tall, large, brute people or whatever in the Old Testament. It was part of a gene defect that had gone on, something that Goliath obviously had at some point. It's okay. That's not, that shouldn't strike us as abnormal at all. So notice, they're telling truth about that. Moving on, verse 33. There also we saw the Nephilim. Okay, stop. What do these people know about the Nephilim? I'll give you a hint. They know everything that, about the Nephilim, probably that we know about the Nephilim. And that is what's in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What were you going to say, Laverne? Go ahead. Oh, okay, not, not much. But here's what we do know from it. We know that there came a point where the sons of God, fallen angels, were able to cohabitate with the daughters of men, and they spawned this superhuman race of these people who were known as mighty men of renown, and it had messed up the gene pool so much. It was not just the natural evil that was going on in the hearts of men on earth, that brought about the flood, it was also the supernatural evil that had infiltrated the natural realm and had messed it all up. So here's all they know. These were men who devastated history to the point to where God destroyed the world. Interesting. Interesting. If we had to break it back and bring it down to brass tacks, here's one thing we know. It just wasn't right. That's what we know. And so notice, we've seen the Nephilim there. Now, there's two ways to look at this. Did the Nephilim survive the flood? No, they didn't. So the question is, how did they get here? There's two explanations. One is, well, easily. If Satan infiltrated the gene pool before the flood, Satan wasn't destroyed in the flood, so why not have fallen demons do this with a new group of people as well and generate that same type of monstrosity again? That's plausible. There's nothing really that argues against that. Or could it be because of the folklore that surrounded the Nephilim was a really good persuasive motivational tool in order to further convince these people to not tread into this land? That's plausible as well. Now notice, if they were thinking according to history, wait a second, every, everybody except for Noah and his people were, were destroyed in the flood. That, that can't be right. When you got people that are high on emotions doesn't matter. In fact, I don't know if you guys remember this, back when 9-11 happened, Hillary Clinton was recorded as making a very interesting statement. She said, anytime that you have a nationwide panic, that's the time to pass a bill. You'll be amazed at what you can push through when people are emotionally unsettled. Does she understand how humans work? These guys do too. And so notice, they are heightening the emotions. Let's really milk this for everything it's worth. So it says here, there we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. Now notice, we've got that in parenthesis. We don't know if that is something that they said, trying to make a connection. Well, we, we saw Anak and they were big, so obviously they're part of the Nephilim, therefore the Nephilim were there. That could be an explanation. Or it could be an editor's note 
Because somebody came back and edited some things in here, wrote some things in, in order to give a better explanation of what was going on. You say, well, wait a second, I thought you said Moses wrote this. How in the world could there be an editor's note? Real easy. In the very last chapter, Moses dies, but his death is recorded. So God either said, here's how I'm going to take your life so you can't go into the promised land because I'm done with you, even though there's nothing wrong with you. Write it down. Okay, now you're done. And that's it. Could have done that. Or somebody else could have recorded that. Either way, our salvation doesn't hinge on it. Interesting stuff to think about. Don't let it keep you up at night. Now, verse 1 of chapter 14. Notice the reaction. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Notice the responses. Look what you've got. The congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. What are they doing? How would you describe this emotional outburst? Grieving? Gosh, if, if the Lord makes us go in here, I mean, he's leading us to death. The Lord's going to have us killed. Terrified. Remember, they're not just worried about themselves. They're worried about their wife and kids. They're worried about grandma and grandpa that are with them. They're worried about, oh, well, all my livelihood has been traveling with us for so long. I have so many oxen and sheep, and this is what we do, and this is how we live, and this is how we survive. And you're going to lead us into a midst of people that are bigger than we are, whose towns are thicker made than we are, which is a terrible description, but you guys get what I mean. The idea of fortified. We're not settlers. We don't have any home base. We're wanderers. We've been wandering for so many days since we came out of the Exodus. We know what a fortified city looks like. We used to build fortifications for Pharaoh. You see what I'm saying? They're they're thinking this through. We can't just read the text and go, oh, that's unfortunate they feel that way. No, think through psychologically what they're looking at. They're weighing life in the balance. What is to bring calm to all this? Anybody know? What should bring calm to this? Should be the word of God. Now get this. This is an important point for us to understand in our lives. How many people here have ever had sudden terrible news okay do you immediately get emotional are you immediately thinking correctly no and as a christian when you're engaging a problem that you have to deal with you have to the worst thing that a christian can do is run and not deal with the problem that's the worst thing why is that because you've immediately robbed the opportunity for the truth to be prevalent and for god to get glory so you've just already taken that in your hands and ran in the other direction Dealing with the problem. You've got to. And you've got to have some sort of something to ground you again so that you can think clearly to move forward. Yesterday, my wife and I, um, we actually found a good pizza place, but it was all the way in Wanakee. Yeah, it was pretty good. Not as good as your stuff, man, but it was like right next to it. So, Anybody ever had Jerry Hilliard's pizza? Good gravy, man. Is manna with cheese. It was great. It was fantastic, man. We're going to have to have you do that sometime. Anyway, I know he hates me talking about it because he's like, gosh, people are going to make a pizza. But it's good stuff, great stuff. Anyway, we're sitting there, and I don't have a Facebook at all, so I keep in touch with nobody, okay? But my wife says, you know, I was checking this uh, page for these women in ministry things, 
and come to find out a guy that I had worked with down in Evansville. He's a church planting strategist for the region down there. And I'd worked a lot with him training church planters and had a lot of conversation and everything. He died yesterday. And, and from what I understand, he didn't just die, he killed himself. And so immediately, and, and I didn't know him that well, but I'd spent time working with him. And we talked about our faith and we talked about the importance of reaching people. And I'm just sitting here thinking, man, how does a Christian do that? What does, what does the enemy have to do to get in there and mess someone's thinking up so bad that they're just like, you know what, life ain't worth it anymore, and just compromising it? I had another friend years ago, played music with him for years. In fact, it's funny, I'm playing bass guitar. Best bass guitar player I've ever heard in my life. He didn't even need to rehearse with you. We're in this key. All right, let's go. And he just play it. Amazing. But when he started playing out in the bar scene, he thought that if he would just take a little bit of meth, it would help him stay a little bit sharper when he would play since the nights are so late and you're losing so much in, in dehydration when you're sweating on stage and all this stuff. Well, just keep me a little bit sharper. The meth made him so paranoid that he ended up killing himself. And he didn't just kill himself. He sliced his throat. And when that didn't do anything, he then turned around and took the knife and stabbed himself in the heart. And it still took him 10 minutes to die. He had locked the bathroom door upstairs. His dad had to come in, bust down the door to find him. And it, 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 I, you can't explain it. You see what I'm saying? It's news that when you hear it, it hits you so hard. In fact, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm still mad at that guy to this day. When I get into heaven, the first thing I want to do is backhand him. And be like, what were you thinking, man? Because here's what's terrible about it. Which guy, the church planner or the pastor? The guitar player guy. Well, I need to find out more about the church planner too. Maybe I just need to lie. Christians that have killed themselves, come over here. <laughs> just don't understand it, man. And I understand, people go through hard times. We can't relate. Sometimes they don't want to reach out. Maybe they were involved in something that was real messed up, that they were more scared to death if anybody found out about that, they couldn't live with it. Whatever it is, I get it. But it still doesn't change the fact that you have a hard time comprehending that. And it emotionally rocks you to where you can't deal with it. You know, I understand in the church planner situation, yeah, I'm not there anymore. There's a ton of other people he could have talked to. He knew everybody. Uh, in the situation of my friend a few years ago as a bass player, he could have come talk to me. He was actually driving 45 minutes one way just to come to church where I was. He could have came up and talked to me. He never bothered to to get in touch with me, nothing. Uh, you, you just don't understand. You can't put your mind around it. So how do you deal with those situations? You've got to have something to serve as your anchor to hold on to. You have got to have, and forgive all the Christian cliches and Thomas Kincaid imagery, but you have to have a rock to fasten onto that will not topple you. That, that, that you can say, you know what, everything else may fall down around me, but this is sure. You have to know God's word. You have to have it locked up here. Because when those emotional instances hit, very few of us are going to be able to reach for a Bible right next to us and begin pouring over it so that we will have some sort of stability. These people are freaking out. It is so important to understand. Caleb is trying to bring some sort of stability to the situation. So whenever emotional things happen, let me give you this real quick. This is what's known as the faith rest drill is what this is. If you want to write it down, you're more than welcome. 
whatever it is. If you need some pins, let me know. The faith rest drill. And this is for when you get hit with an emotional situation that has completely rocked you, and you have to deal with it. You have to. In fact, I would say that Christians should be mandated to deal with it because, let's be honest, we're the only ones that have the supplies to deal with it. Okay? So, when you get rocked at your foundation, the first thing you have to do is grab onto a piece of Scripture. Maybe you have it memorized. Maybe you find out that a child's been abusing drugs. Uh, Maybe you find out that a relative was in a car wreck. Maybe you find out uh, a numerous amount of of tragedies uh, that are going on. Larry, you want to name off any amount of tragedies that you've seen over your years? I mean, all of them, man. And it's probably never easy, is it? Some things you've probably never seen before. There's some things that went on in the neighborhood of the church I used to pastor. If I told you about them, you wouldn't be able to sleep for the rest of the day or tonight or tomorrow, I guarantee you. It just unnerved you. I was talking to Pete about it, and it made Pete's eyebrows raise, so I figured, wow, that's something. Because chances are they've seen everything. But number one, you've got to grab onto some Scripture, something that will settle you in who God is and what he has done. So let's, let's do like a for instance here. Somebody want to share their favorite Scripture, something that you've memorized. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, what is it? Okay, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Does everybody see the truth from the emotional there? Okay, in all your ways, regardless of what you do, regardless of what you go, what is the direction? In all your ways, what's it say? Acknowledge him. And he will do what? He'll direct your paths. He'll make your paths straight. Now, I've got my my scripture passage. What do you do? You meditate on it. That's step number two. Number one, grab you a piece of scripture. Number two, meditate on it. And I'm not talking about, okay, yeah, I know what that says and putting it down, okay? I'm talking about you are the cow that has just intaken the grass and you are making some cud, buddy. I mean, you're just don't, don't, don't. Chomp, chomp, and you're getting every bit of nutrients out of that thing that you could possibly pull. Because here's the reason why. When we're all going, ah, 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 inside, we've got to have something that brings it down and rests us into truth. We've got to have truth to stand on. We've got to have truth to move forward on. And our souls need to be able to rest in this and go, wait a second, wait a second. If I need to do anything with my heart right now, what I need to do is trust the Lord with all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it directed in Him. My understanding wants to do this, 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 this. See, by meditating on it, you start working through. You start working through. What would I do in this situation if I were left up to follow my own heart? How is this making the difference in my life? Trusting Him with all my heart, leaning not on my own understanding. Whatever decision I make, here's what I know I need to do. Acknowledge Him. He needs to be preeminent. Like David says, I think in Psalm 16, the Lord is ever before me. You know, I picture it like wherever I turn, that's where Christ is. That's the direction I want to go. If I'm going to go in this direction with it, I want Christ to be in the center of it. 
I want him to have the preeminence in this situation. He is the focal point, not me. What's it say? In all your ways acknowledge him and he will. Notice that. Does everybody see how you pull back for a second? The trust of my heart is in him. My own understanding is faulty and messed up. When I move forward, I'm going to acknowledge him, and I can be guaranteed, it's a promise, that as I step forward, he will guide the path. Even if I start out on the wrong one, he'll move me where I need to be. Does everybody see how intimate God wants to be in those situations? We just have to grab a hold of the verse. Somebody throw another verse. What's another verse that's your favorite verse? Stand by and watch the deliverance of the Lord. Is that easy to do? Do you realize in emotional situations, the best thing that you can do at that moment is nothing? Because when we act hastily, we actually heap sin or make the problem worse. Do nothing. Stop and rest. Have our scripture. Meditate on it. Mentally work through it. That'd probably be your third step. And then your fourth one would be press on until you receive rest. Grab a scripture, meditate on it, mentally, step three, work through it. Mentally, go through it, line by line, piece by piece, word by word. Work through that passage. And then press on, don't give up on it until that truth gives you rest is number four. That is the faith rest drill. Because life is going to come. There's going to be a moment when you think you were crossing over into the promised land, somebody came out and took a report that completely threw your entire countenance into the sand. Oh my gosh, what in the world are we going to do now? Watch how the failure happens. Verse 2, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Those are reactions that have allowed for Yahweh's promises to be eclipsed. We should have just died back there. Well, this thing we've been walking through, man, we should have just died right there. But to have these people forcibly come on and kill us, wait, man, somebody lost sight of the Lord. Why did you lose sight of God in this situation? Stop. Do you realize what you're saying? Do you realize that when the emotional response doesn't rest but moves forward, it starts blaspheming? It starts speaking against the very things that God has promised says here, verse 3, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Now notice this, our wives and our little ones. Very important to note that. Notice the concern is going beyond just themselves. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Now stop. What was in Egypt? What happened to them there? What? Slavery. Stop for just a second. Moses, good grief, this report's terrible. We're going to die and they're going to come and just cut all of our heads off. We should have just remained in slavery and God never intervened in our lives. Those responses also make us severely ungrateful. Think about it, man. Think about it. Because this isn't far from how we deal with situations. 
And if these people are being tested, remember? Remember what God said in Exodus to Moses? I'm bringing these people out, and he will test you. Remember? They got the Ten Commandments. They said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't ever let him speak to us again, because if he does, we'll die. You speak to us to Moses. You, or you speak to us, Moses. And what did Moses tell them right after that? The Lord is giving you these, and he is bringing you out to test you. This is the test. Will they trust and cross or will they exist in unbelief and die? Unbelief will always lead to its logical conclusion, death, every time. So noticed, uh, verse 4, So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Now here's a question. They're worried about their wife and kids. They haven't gone over into the land yet. They've just received a, a report. Now they want to overthrow Moses. Now, who put Moses in charge? Okay, so God, the guy you set up, nah, we see where he's leading us. Let's get somebody else. This is too hard. See, here's an amazing thing. Let me say this, and you might be able to gravitate towards this, and you might think I'm silly for saying it. A lot of times, even if you make certain decisions in some directions as a leader, especially in, in the church, a lot of people really don't care how biblical it is. They really don't. They just want to know whether it serves or helps them in some way. But somebody could sit here and unfold, this is how biblical this idea is, and this is why we need to do this, this is why we need to position ourselves for this. And I don't care. It just calls on me to do something other than what I'm used to doing, and so therefore I hate it, and you need to leave. Can't say amen, you better say ouch. Right? It's true. It's true. And it's no different here. You know, Moses, the guy who made sure that you got let out, the guy who did all the miracles when it was dark everywhere else, Moses told you it'd be light where you're at. You know, the guy that when he threw his staff down, it became a stake and then, uh, not a stake, a snake. <laughs> and then Pharaoh's magicians threw theirs down and it became a snake and Moses has ate it up. He's trying to show us something. You know, he's the one that, he's going to go up and his face is going to shine because he's been with God. You know, Moses struck the rock, water came out, told us that we'd have man, and we got tired of man. He said, you know what? You're going to have quail. God's going to give you quail. Not quail. It all came through Moses. But right now, let's toss him to the side. Let's get a yes man. I guarantee you this, and yeah, we're pulling off secondary principles here. The church does not need a yes man. It just needs a man that loves God and obeys his word, knows his word, points to the word. That alleviates a lot of the pressure in leadership, doesn't it? But this is what God's word says. Oh, okay. I'm a totally different person about it now. Think, think, because too often we get emotional. I don't like that. It's not the way it's been. I'm comfortable with this. Think, think. So now moving on. Notice it says here, Verse 4, so they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Let me confess to you, I would not respond this way. Well, let's just throw Jeremy out and get somebody else. I'd be like, <laughs> go to my office, lock the door, right? Notice that their reaction is, 
What a great example. God, these people are beyond me, and they fall on their faces. Does everybody know that they didn't pray like this? Everybody know that? What are we talking about here? What does prostrate mean? Dude, think about it. Oh God, what are we going to do? And I mean that with all seriousness. Laid out. Didn't care if their clothes got dirty. The emotional impact of this situation had so started to hit Moses and Aaron, they didn't know what else to do except fall for the mercy of God to please be poured out here. They're beyond dealing with God. We guys think about us having a church service where we talk about prayer and then everybody praying prostrate. We just won't put the chairs back out for Awana. How's that? Everybody out like that? On our knees? Praying on our knees doesn't hurt. It hurts some of us. You can, you can bring your charismatic cushion and we'll set it out there and your glory fan in case you get hot and we'll be all right. We can make provisions for that. But as everybody see, get this, when God's plan is threatened, you need leaders who are going to point in the right direction regardless of an uncertain situation. You need someone that's going to hold to God's word more than hold to people's desires. And you need people that when the difficulty gets too intense, they are prostrate before God. Does everybody see this? This is like totally different sometimes than how we live. But what I'm saying is, is this could very well serve as a good lesson of, of, of a reality for all of us. Think about it for just a second. It just comes to my mind. When's the last time you got on your knees and you really prayed to the Lord? And it's not because you're just asking everything from him like he's a magical Santa Claus. We're really crying out to God, God, there needs to be a difference here. God, there needs to be a change here. God, there needs to be your hand moving here. I don't have answers, Lord, and so I'm crying out to you. Cry out to the Lord, you will be delivered, saved. We're guaranteed that in the Bible. Something to think about. So notice their reaction as leaders. Verse 6, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. They have anguish. Whenever they would tear their clothes, anguish, disgust. I can't believe what's going on here. This is ridiculous kind of stuff. They're, 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 in, they're in utter remorse. Verse 7, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, now watch this. Joshua and Caleb step up. Mo Moses and Aaron are on their faces before the Lord. They're not saying anything anymore, right? Joshua and Caleb step up, and here is the truth that they bring. The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. Truth? Yes. How do they know? First-hand knowledge. I am witnessing to you about what I have seen. Look what it says, verse 8. If the Lord is pleased with us, that got your attention, but put on the brakes, man. Right? That's you going 50 miles an hour and then throwing on the emergency brake. Stop. Here's the condition, people. If the Lord is pleased with us, that's what needs to be answered. Anytime you see that word, if, starting it out, there's a contingency in play. We've gone to the land. It's exactly as God said. Now, if he's pleased with us, here's what's going to happen. But until step one is fulfilled, step two is not coming. 
They wanted step two without worrying about step one. We just want to be emotional and have a freak-out session and, and still get what we don't deserve. Stop for just a second, okay? If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. This is good leadership here because they are seeking to refocus people on the facts because they've been so overcome by the feelings. This is important. What are the facts of the situation? The Lord wants to give us this land. Otherwise, we wouldn't be out here. He wants us to have it. It's based on a promise of our forefather, Abraham. He's here to give it to us. Abraham would have loved to see this day when it happened. And here we are at the threshold of fulfilling something that is going to give God an insane amount of glory. Is he pleased with us? Are we trusting him for the results of the situation? Verse 9, here is the warning. Only do not. In my, in my Bible, I underlined do not twice, and then I put two huge arrows above it. Because that's how important it is. Notice, the land's good. God wants to give it to you. If he's pleased with you, here's how you move forward. Do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now pause. Everybody see there where it says, they will be our prey? Notice that this is Caleb and Joshua's response to what was said in chapter 13, verse 33. Notice, there also we saw the Nephilim, we talked about that, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Compared to them, we look teeny-weeny, itty-bitty, we were going to get crushed. It's almost like just getting a bug crushed under your foot. No, 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 no. Pay attention. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the Lamb, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation agreed and said, praise God, amen. What we were doing was so messed up. My mind has been changed. Thank you, Joshua and Caleb. Let's trust the Lord full force. Let him lead the charge. We will follow behind him. What in the world were we thinking? Don't you wish sometimes that we would come to that conclusion? Don't you wish somebody, I mean, we would have a prophet come in and just Lucy us to death, you know, Charlie Brown, okay, I was thinking wrong, and get us back in line with what God is doing because something got us off the path. So notice, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Stop for a second. Let that sit in. Read it again. Read it for your own, just silently. All the congregation said to stone them with stones. Is what Joshua and Caleb saying? Do they do they lie? Are they are they mis? construed in some way? I mean, are they misguided? 
They messed up. They're like, man, you haven't been listening to the same God we have. What makes you hear somebody's response and then you want to pick up a rock and beat them till they die? That's what stoning is. I mean, think about it. Does everybody see how messed up the emotions were? This is a carnal response when uncompromising emotions are met with truth. Truth comes in and tries to settle everyone. Rest in God. He's already promised it. He's already got it taken care of. What makes you want to grab a rock and beat a person to death? Think about how obstinate they are to the truth. And here's a question you have to ask. Where had God failed them so far? He hadn't. The track record's perfect. If they could have just called a mental timeout and take a look back and go, okay, God provided here, 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 here. I saw him do this, 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 this. And then they just grabbed onto that truth and just waited and meditated on that. No, let's kill these guys. Why? Are they lying to you? No. We just don't like what they got to say. Isn't this what happened to Stephen? You uncircumcised in heart, how you always resist the Holy Spirit. And it says that they stopped their ears. It's, trying to, it's kind of hard to stone a guy when you're trying to hold on to your ears from receiving any more information while you're beating them with it. And there sits Saul going, good job, guys. That's exactly what the Lord would want out of this situation. Everybody see how messed up the thinking is. Everybody get that? Let's focus on this one point and then we'll, we'll close up. How many people have ever heard of Neil Anderson? Okay, he wrote a book called uh, Victory Over the Darkness, Bondage Breaker. He's written a lot of different books like that. He gave a, a, a study one time. He had about 13 PhD students he was working with uh, at uh, Biola, I think it was. And this is an interesting... Uh, exercise if you know if you know what I'm going with this don't ruin it for everybody but if you have a piece of paper or even if you don't you can just put it in your mind I just want to do this real quick and we'll wrap up we're almost to time we got about five minutes we started five minutes late so I trust that you guys want to be fair so but on a piece of paper I want you to write down right right on there what two things do I fear the most what two things do I fear the most? Maybe it helps you to write it down. You can reflect on it later. Or uh, maybe you can just sit there and mentally have it. But go ahead and write yourself a one and a two. And then write out, what are the two things that you fear the most? Give you just a couple of seconds to do that. What two things do you fear the most? Out of the 13 PhD students that he had, number one and number two, almost on every student's paper, was failure. It's one of the number one things. I fear failing. Whatever it is. And the second one was probably related to a peer pressure type of idea, disappointment, letting people down. They were very close married and matched. 
I don't know what you put down, but raise your hand. No, don't raise your hand. That's terrible. We won't do that. How many of you put down God? Think about it. Out of the two things that you fear the most in your life, some of you might have put down like snakes, something like that, spiders, mosquitoes. (laughs) But did you put down God? And one thing that he found in this class was what hinders a lot of progress in the Christian life is that he found that we fear a lot of other things before we fear God. Is he loving? Yes. Is he gracious? Yes. Merciful? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. His word is sure. He cares for his kids and supplied everything that you and I need in abundance. We're not lacking in a single thing. But he is also a God of judgment. He is also an intimate father who has no problem spanking his kids when they need it. You know, I've told you guys that you've heard his name a little bit. His name's Charlie Clough. He does the Bible Framework series online for free. Amazing Bible teacher. And I was talking with him out in the parking lot before we went into church one day because he was there going to teach. We were talking about this whole issue. He said, you know, have we ever just sat down and thought that maybe we should fear God and do what he says because if we don't, he'll kick our butts? I was like, well, coming out of your mouth, I never expected to hear that, but yes. Have we ever thought about that God is God? And maybe sometimes in our perspective of him, our reception of him, we've been too busy doing this with God rather than doing this with God. Doesn't this seem more appropriate? It does to me. Is this true? Yes. But because we don't hold those things in balance, we do this much more than we do this. These people getting ready to make this horrible decision were fearing the wrong thing. Scared to death of what somebody might do to them, might do to their family, might say about them, might take from them. And they didn't fear the God who had freely given to them all they needed. When you let a truth like that take root and you allow the Holy Spirit to shake you with it where you are in relation to your fear with God, that is what transports you into being a missionary. Think about that for a while. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being our Lord, for being the amazing, sovereign creator that you are, holy and just in all your ways, gracious, loving, kind. Your loving kindness is beyond compare and beyond measure. Father, you are holy, and you choose to extend your gracious arm to a wretched people. Thank you that the blood of Christ frees us from having to make the common carnal mistakes that we often do, and that you have given us truth to ground us and lead us in dark times. Wherever we are standing in our relationship with you, 
Father, I pray that we have a healthy dose of understanding that you are the Lord and there is none like you. Allow that, please, to penetrate our hearts and move us to obedience. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.